If you have your Bibles, please open with me to John chapter 21. John's Gospel chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 1 through 19 this morning. John 21, 1 through 19. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, you can grab the Pew Bible there in front of you and open up to page 1250. 1250 in the Pew Bible. As you're opening up there, I want to just say a brief word about my joy uh, as we are finishing up John's Gospel. This is the next to last sermon in uh, a long series through the Gospel of John. And I, I want to just say to you what a blessing you all are to me in that you're willing and oftentimes I've found to be very eager to dig into the truth of God's Word Sunday by Sunday. I'm, I've been here about six and a half years now, and so when I came here then, uh, at the beginning, I was a little nervous about going through books of the Bible, but I, I want you to know that, that I've noted with joy that you are a Berean congregation who longs to see the Word of God, who longs to hear the Word of God preached, and one of the great joys I have in my life as a pastor is that very fact. So thank you. Thank you for your patience as we, as we work through the Scriptures. But as I told you then, and I say now, uh, each and every book of the Bible, each and every chapter of the Bible is a treasure chest. And I don't want to just skim the coins off the top. I want to make sure that we're getting a steady diet, steady diet of God's Word each and every Sunday. So I, I thank you and praise you for your willingness to hear and to study God's Word. If you have uh, your Bibles open there, I'm going to ask you if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to you. Beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. But Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And all there, although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray together. Lord, today would you open our hearts and minds to be changed by your word. Lord, we pray that we would obey your word. And God, we pray you would show us the kind of people that you like to use. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a little boy, somewhere around Watsy and Ford's age, uh, somewhere five, six, seven years old, somewhere in there, I was spending the night at my best friend's house, and we were sitting there eating pizza at the dinner table with his family, and every time I was there, I I just knew there was this unique smell that I couldn't quite place. Well, that night, she talked about how she had gotten some fresh flowers. She just mentioned it as an aside, and that there are these beautiful, fresh flowers in the house. I looked over, and I thought, man, those are very nice flowers. And in that very moment, I had an epiphany. I realized something. You see, I had allergies as a kid. That's probably a big shock to most of you. And... I had allergies when I was a kid, and my mom never had fresh flowers in the house. I I wasn't accustomed to that smell, but I did know that smell from somewhere. And suddenly, the synapses in my little brain started firing. And there at the dinner table, I said, That's why it always smells like a funeral home here. (laughs) She did not think it was funny. Friend's mom was not amused. But the reality was, I I didn't smell fresh flowers, but I did smell them at the funeral home. And I smelled them that night, and I thought, that's the smell. It's the smell of a funeral home. That's where I've smelled that. I am told that smell is the human sense most closely related to memory. We we can smell a smell, and it triggers memories. We, 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 we oftentimes, I, I hear people all the time say things like, I just remember the smell in their home. Or, I, I remember the smell of, of what that person smelled like. Or I, I remember always this or that. And, and so oftentimes, a smell can trigger memory. Sometimes our nose gets out ahead of our brain and our mouth. And, and it triggers memories really quickly. I like to imagine the feelings that Peter must have had. As he jumps off the boat, as he swims to the shore, 
as he goes to the Lord in his excitement. And before he quite gets there, he smells the smell of a charcoal fire. Now, if you've ever grilled out, uh, you know what a charcoal fire smells like. It's distinct, and it lingers. It lingers on your clothes. I, if I ever grill out at home, Whitney makes me take a shower, change before I come to bed. She don't want to smell charcoal all night. It's a very distinct smell. And there's Peter viewing the Lord, standing over a charcoal fire. Similar, I would imagine, same words used. Similar to the one that he was standing by, warming himself over the night our Lord was betrayed and arrested when Peter denied the Lord three times. Now, some of you, understandably, may look at this and say, that's a little bit of a stretch, I think. And I, I understand that. I, I get that. But at the same time, I, I really can't help but think that John is being intentional and showing the sort of fire that Peter is at in both of these places. And so I'll, I imagine a smell. The smell of that charcoal reminding Peter of the night he betrayed the Lord, standing and warming himself over a charcoal fire. You know, Peter, as we know, and when we think about Peter, we think about Peter as the leader of the apostles post-resurrection. And so we have to ask ourselves, how does Peter go from a famous betrayal to being an effective leader? How does he go from denying the Lord to proclaiming the Lord in power? How, you might ask? How can God use Peter? How can the Lord use Peter for all that he uses Peter to do when Peter has so clearly, baldly, and famously betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ in his hour of greatest need? I want to tell you this morning, show you three things that are true of Peter that are almost always true of those who God uses. Obviously, God uh, doesn't have to obey the rules of this sermon, and God can use who God pleases. I, I hope you understand that. But still, typically, I think if you look throughout the scriptures and if you look in our real world examples of those whom God uses greatly for his glory, I think so often these are true of those that God uses. And so you might be asking yourself this morning, can God really use me? Am I the kind of person that God can use for his glory? I, I hope you'll be encouraged this message. Or you may be sitting there thinking, I want to be used of God. Well, I hope you'll be encouraged by this message. Here's the first point this morning. God uses those who are forgiven. God uses those who are forgiven. When God wants to build His kingdom, when God wants to spread His gospel, when God wants to do great things, almost always, Unless God's doing something very unusual, from time to time He does. But almost always, the rule is, God uses those who are forgiven. Now, sometimes God will use somebody who's not yet received forgiveness, right? God can use them in different ways. But in the way we're talking about in a Christian context, in a gospel-spreading context, typically God is going to use those who are forgiven. I love this little uh, this little story in verses 1 through 14, this picture. John's including it here for lots of reasons. One, of course, to set up for what happens to him and Peter and kind of how they get commissioned by the Lord for their ministries. But I, I think he's also using it as one more piece of historical evidence that the resurrection really happened, showing again that these eyewitnesses were just that, eyewitnesses. And here we see Peter choosing to go fishing. 
Now, some people think that they're abandoning their post as disciples or whatever else, but I think Peter just wanted something to do. It's time to go fishing. So he went fishing and everybody else goes with him. As day's breaking, Jesus is on the shore and they didn't recognize him from the distance and in the dark. What does Jesus say? Children, do you have any fish? No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And then there's this enormous haul of fish that comes in. And John, always the astute observer, says what? It is the Lord. And then Peter, for some reason or another, we we don't know exactly what the raiment situation was for those who were fishing. But there's a, a chance that in his haste, he just decided to put some clothes on to jump in the water. Or maybe his clothes were really loose and he kind of tied them up so he wouldn't lose them when he jumped in the water. At any rate, Peter jumps out of the boat. As soon as he realizes it's the Lord, he jumps out of the boat and swims ashore to go and to see Jesus. They finally uh, realize it's him. They, they, Jesus commands them to bring some fish to him. And they said they pull the fish up on shore and they lay out 153 fish. Now, over the centuries, commentators have tried to figure out whether that 153 means something. And there's been some kind of funny... Uh, funny thoughts on what that might mean. Why 153? And you've really got to work hard to find 153 meaning anything. I'm going to tell you something. I think that tells us more about those commentators than it does about the text. You know what I think it tells us about those commentators? They don't have many friends that are fishermen. Because I've never met a fisherman who'd forgotten how many fish they caught on a given day. I, I think this is just one more sign of the authenticity of the story. Where's Dawson? Is he here? Jim, how many fish did you catch yesterday? Okay, he's showing off now, but you get the point, okay? And, and so you guys understand the point, right? Dawson, I knew Dawson had been fishing yesterday. You remember how many fish you catch. And so I think that's what the 153 is there for. I think they were just showing, demonstrating. I mean, John's a fisherman. He's just saying, we caught 153 fish that day. Think you're a good fisherman? You ought to go fishing with the Lord. It gets better. Big fish, too. I love the story. Peter gets there. Jesus cooks breakfast. He shows himself to the people. And then, and then we see the business that Jesus is about. P- Peter's heart remains in the right place. I think John's making that clear. When Peter sees the Lord, he still loves the Lord. He jumps into the water to go see Jesus. So we see that Peter's heart is right, and yet this episode is so important in the life of Peter, in the life of the church. And really, it's important. It's an important episode in all of our hearts, in all of our lives, because Peter is in need of restoration. If Peter is going to be effective for the kingdom of God, he needs grace and he needs forgiveness. If he's going to be used mightily of God, as we know that he will be, he needs to be Forgiven. Peter needs to experience Jesus' forgiveness in order to be used by him. Something I want you to know this morning. God uses forgiven sinners. That's always the case. God uses forgiven sinners. There's a reason why God doesn't use perfect people. It's because they don't exist. And and, and I'm going to tell you something right now. I think one of the things that we've done in Christian culture and Christian society and often in our churches is is that we've kind of assumed and pretended like our preachers and pastors and ministerial staff are perfect. They're perfect. 
And what happens is when you, you get one who decides they're not going to fake it, they're not going to pretend, and they're going to be honest. A lot of times I've seen churches get angry with that kind of pastor. Why? Because they, they think that, that a pastor is kind of a super Christian. I ask you this, are you expecting perfect leaders and perfect Christians? You know, a Christian or a Christian leader is not the top category of good people. God, God doesn't look at the church and say, all right, I'm going to find, okay, there's the top 5% in the class, and I, that's the people I'm going to use. No, no, brothers and sisters, we're all sinners before God in need of forgiveness. Now, that's not to say that there aren't standards for Christian leadership. That's obviously the case, and, and God expects that. But when you go read the expectations that God has for his pastors and for his deacons and for his leaders, it's not that much different than what he expects of every Christian. It's not that much different. God has standards and expectations for His people, but we must recognize that God also uses forgiven sinners, people in need of grace. And the more we act like God will only use perfect people, the longer we'll go without reaching the world for Christ. Let me ask you this question today. Do you feel like God can't use you because you're imperfect? Maybe you've sensed that God's leading you to something, and you say, no, I... I, I, I need to be better to do that. I, I, I really need to be better if I'm, if I'm going to do that. Do you know how ridiculous that is? And I'm going to give you another word to describe it. You're not going to like it, but I'm going to give it to you, okay? That is prideful. That is prideful. You see, we, we say things like that because we think it's humble, right? Oh, I'm not good enough to do what God's asking me to do. I, I, I'm not good enough. I'm like Moses. I stutter. I can't talk for the Lord. I'm, I'm like this, I do this, I can't do that for the Lord. You know what you're saying when you say you're not good enough to serve the Lord or to be used to the Lord? What you're saying is that the Lord needs your gifts, abilities, talents, and perfection to accomplish His mission. Is that what God needs to use you? No. No. God doesn't need all your stuff. He can use it if He wants to. He doesn't need you to be perfect. He needs you to be willing and able and to be a, a, a humble vessel through which His power and His might and His glory can be made manifest. Because people look at Matt Alexander and say, man, that guy's not worth much, but I guess God can use anybody. And people, God, people can look at you and say, man, maybe I didn't think He was going to ever do anything like that. But look, God's using him. It's about God's grace and God's power. Right before I came here, in fact, the same week I was coming to meet with the search committee here at First Baptist Church of Gadsden, and I preached my grandfather's funeral back home in Boaz and um, got up and preached. I hadn't been home in a while, hadn't preached at home in a while. And uh, so people kept coming up to me afterwards, and at first it was really encouraging. But after a while, I noticed a pattern, and I started to kind of think, I don't know how encouraging this is, because they kept coming up to me saying, Matt, you did a really good job. They seemed so surprised. They said, hey, Matt, you know, I don't, it was almost like I was, they didn't quite say this because they were being nice. It was almost like I was waiting on them to say, you know, I didn't really know what to expect here today, son, but you didn't really make a total mess of it. And, and so I, I can just remember thinking, you know, I could have, uh, I, I, I came in thinking, man, I'm, I'm so great. But people who knew me thought, man, God's done something in this young man's life. God did that. He didn't do that. It's prideful to think the Lord can't use you because you're imperfect, because nobody's perfect, and God's not out looking for the best. God's looking for the obedient, the humble, the willing. The Lord always uses forgiven people to do His work. 
People who needed forgiveness. People who needed restoration. Never forget that when you're telling God what you will and won't do. But not only that, God doesn't only use those who are forgiven. God also uses those who have been humbled. God uses those who have been humbled. I've, I've talked to you all about how much I love Peter. I love Peter because Peter helps me sometimes feel a little better about me. Sometimes Peter kind of gets his mouth out ahead of him, you know. But Peter can sometimes say things and, and people are like, man, Peter, you know. Or Jesus says, Peter, I don't think you really know what you're saying, but thanks, buddy, you know. And, and so, and so I've, been, I've been there. You know, I've been Mr. Mr. Eager. Peter can be boastful. He can be quick to speak. He's kind of out there all the time. And, and, and so he, he, he seems to always kind of just be putting himself out there. And so I love how Jesus asks him the question, verse 15. Do you love me more than these? Some people think he's talking about the fish, like do you love me more than your occupation, that this is him taking him back out of fishing and back into ministry. But I, I don't think that's at all. I think he's talking about the other disciples. Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples? I think I've heard you say it maybe 50 times. And so do you love me the most? Do, do you really love me as much as you say you love me? Three times Jesus asks Peter whether or not he loves him. Three times Peter says that he does. Three times the Lord commissions Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. If you truly love me, Peter, then do the work of a shepherd. And here we see a transformation that happens in Peter's life where he goes from saying that he's willing to die for the Lord to actually being willing to die for the Lord. Going from denying Jesus in the garden to embracing Jesus on the seashore. The humble, simple work. You know, all the disciples were worried about who's going to sit on what throne, right? That's what everybody's worried about. But what is Jesus saying? No, the true work I've called you to do, you've been humbled now. I'm calling you to feed my sheep, to do shepherd work. Peter had been chastened and humbled by his own sin, by his own lack of love for the Lord, by his own ability, inability to serve Jesus on his own. But after being humbled, Peter was able to serve Jesus better than ever. In Acts 2, Pastor uh, Peter preaches at Pentecost. Whew, it's a tongue twister. Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and 3,000 people get saved. 1 Peter 5, 5, what does Peter say to his readers? Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter was humbled before God. In so many ways, Peter was humiliated. And here Jesus is reminding him of that failure. Notice how God humbles us. Notice how God humbles us. One way to humble somebody is just to make them feel terrible about it. If y'all y'all encountered this, this you know, shame-based behavior modification. It's the worst kind, in my opinion. Shame and fear are not the best motivators in the long run. And even though it may get some behavior modification, you very rarely get the heart through that. But Jesus is not shame-based, but Jesus is also not giving a, a laissez-faire approach here, just saying, oh, don't worry about it, Peter. No, no, it's, it's, it's different. It's the grace approach. It's the Jesus approach. 
It's the, it's the Jesus repro- approach to rebuke. It's a gentle reminder, asking three times, as Peter had denied him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's not piling on and dogpiling on with shame and guilt, but it's a gentle reminder, but it's also the offer of grace. I want you to feed my sheep. Peter had heard him say, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. And Jesus has done that, and now he's asking Peter to feed his sheep, to do the work of a shepherd, to take his own mantle. This is the grace approach to being humbled. Not only when we're humbled do we need to remember our sin, but we also need to understand when we're humbled the magnificent and costly grace of God. Jesus is saying, I love you enough to recommission you to feed my sheep. One way or another, brothers and sisters, God humbles those He uses. He shows them, He demonstrates to them their complete and total dependence on Him. That leads us to our last point. God uses those who count the cost. God uses those who count the cost. God's grace is free, but I want to let you know it's very rare that following Jesus, being used of God, is totally and completely without cost. Listen to what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus in John 13 was trying to demonstrate to his disciples that he had to die for their sins. Listen to what Peter says to the Lord. Lord, where are you going? John 13, 36 through 38. Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Do you hear the the irony in this? As Peter will one day be crucified. Follow me now, but what you will follow afterward, not only to heaven, but to the cross. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I I think Jesus is sort of giving Peter a flashback to this moment because he asks him this three times, do you love me? And then what does he say? Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. In other words, I think that's a little picture of Peter's kind of pridefulness. You dress yourself, you do what you want, you're in charge. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John makes plain, more than likely by the time John was written, Peter was already dead. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Where I am going, you cannot go. But one day, you will follow after. Follow me, Peter. Feed my lambs. Love my lambs. Do what I do. Live out this commission I'm giving you. And one day, you will be able to lay down your life for me. What you said was more true than you realized. Peter is the classic example of the accidental prophet. He, he says what he thinks is right, and it's usually more right than he realizes. Before, Peter was willing to fight to the death to help Jesus take his kingdom. But now, Peter will be willing to be crucified 
because Jesus has already established his kingdom. Peter was willing to pull out his sword in the garden in order to protect the kingdom of God, in order to ensure that Jesus sat on his rightful throne. But once he realized the fight was over, he's willing to die in the garden, but not willing to die at the cross. Now that the kingdom of God is established, Peter goes from being willing to pull out his sword in order to fight for the kingdom of God to put away his sword in order to build the kingdom of God. He's realized. He's been transformed. God's not looking for princes. He's looking for shepherds. God is looking for people who are willing to count the cost and follow Him in His suffering. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a promise that you will never suffer. It is not a promise that your life will be perfect. Jesus offers us forgiveness freely by His grace. But I want each and every one of us here to know today that we must count the cost. We must count the cost. It sounds contradictory, but it's true. While it's totally free from God, there is a cost in our own personal lives. God used Peter. He used Peter mightily despite his failure. And He will use you too. But I ask you this morning, have you experienced God's forgiveness? Are you actively pursuing humility? Have you counted the cost? I like to imagine years later, the Apostle Peter, Apostle of the Lord's Church, mighty in the Scripture, venerated among the people of God. And I like to imagine him walking down the street, maybe some vendor's cooking something, and he catches the whiff of a charcoal fire. That smell that he could never erase from his memory. That smell of failure and death. But also, thanks to Jesus, the smell of resurrection and the smell of grace. This morning, I want you to know that no matter what is in your past, no matter what you've done, no matter what lies behind, no matter what the aroma of your past might be, The aroma of your future is glorious so long as you are in Christ. I want to offer an invitation this morning. It's simple, to be frank. First of all, if you've never trusted Jesus for the first time, if you've never put your faith and hope and trust in Christ for the first time, this morning I believe He stands with arms open wide waiting for you. If you would, turn from your sins and repentance Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus in faith. I think He will save you. I believe with all my heart He will save you this morning. Second of all, you may be a Christian and say, Pastor, I've just not been living these things out. I want God to use me. Would you pray for me that by His grace I could grow in these things? This altar is open for you today. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer... I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus and his gospel. We thank you for the grace that you've shown Peter and the grace that you've shown us. And God, my prayer is that you would use your people mightily. God, as we are forgiven, as we humble ourselves, and as we count the cost, God, I pray that we would be mighty instruments in your hands. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.